Welcome to Frontline Church, South OKC's podcast, where each week we upload a new sermon from our sermon series. If you have any questions or concerns or need prayer for anything, feel free to reach out at hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you. The scripture for today's sermon comes from Genesis 6, 5 through 14, 7, 11 through 13, 17, and 18. The word of God speaks to us. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day, all the foundations of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and the rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife, and the three wives of his sons with them embarked the ark. The flood and continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. This is God's word to us. All right. Well, good morning. We doing okay? It's good to be with you guys today. If you've got a Bible, open up to the passage that was just read, Genesis 6. We're going to cover today in our study of Genesis, um, chapters 6 to 8. And so uh, it's kind of a, a large stretch of Scripture. We won't work through that sort of line by line or verse by verse, but more kind of theme by theme. And so that, that's our work today. There's a lot of work ahead of us, but um, I, just want, I do want to say before I jump into prayer that it really is good to be here. I told the last service that I've been here enough recently that it starts to feel like I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a regular with you guys, and so um, I don't need to be as introduced anymore, but I love being here. You guys are um, really welcoming and really hospitable, and I get to visit all of our frontline congregations, and I feel as welcome here as anywhere, so thank you for that. That's a big deal. Um, that's God's work among you. You should know that. Like God's working among you to make people feel welcomed into God's house, and that's a big deal. So if you're a guest today... Um, this, is, this is a good place to be. This is a good family to be a part of. Uh, they're, they're a welcoming group, and uh, it's a safe place to process doubt and faith and your mess, because um, all of us have it. So, uh, sound good? 
It's good to be here again. And so let me pray for you. You pray for me. And then we'll get to work in this, uh, this familiar story. God, we come to you today in the strong name of your son, Jesus. And I know that when we come in Jesus' name, our prayer is heard. Not because we have great things to pray, but because he gives us a hearing before the Father. And so, Jesus, this hour I ask that you would help us. Where there's doubt in the room, would you turn it to faith? Where there's a lack of love in the room, would you fill it with new compassion and new affection? And where, um, where we're just walking away from you, God, would you draw us back? And you're able to accomplish all of those things through your living word. Thank you that what we're reading in Genesis chapter 6 is not dead but alive. Thank you that your revelation is always effective to pull us back and to accomplish your purpose. And so we, uh, we want to give ourselves to the old word and practice the old gospel and trust that through it you do new things. And so we offer ourselves to Jesus and the whole church said, amen, amen. Have you guys ever rewatched a movie as an adult that you watched when you were a kid, but then when you rewatched it as an adult, you thought, that is way worse than I remember it being, like way more intense and quite, quite inappropriate in some ways. If you're a parent, uh, you know what I'm talking about because there's these moments where you'll watch something back and you'll think to yourself, how was I allowed to watch that? Like how did that get through, you know? Um, and as a parent, you'll have moments where you'll think about a movie you watched as a teenager or something, as a kid, and you'll think, hey, you know what would be fun is to show that to my kids now. And we'll have a whole, everyone break out the sodas and the popcorn and the chocolates and whatever else you break out for movie night. And, and you think, hey, we're going to watch an old movie that I, and you turn it on and you start looking to your spouse over and over again. You're like, should we turn this off? Were we just like hardened sinners at 10 years old and missed all this stuff? Like, how, how did that happen? A couple of years ago, uh, this happened for my family when the new Top Gun movie was coming out. And my daughters then, 9 and 10 years old, wanted to watch the new Top Gun. But my wife and I were like, before you can watch the new, you got to watch the 86, you know. And so we thought, hey, we're going to have a movie night. We knew about the Kelly McGillis and Tom Cruise sex scene coming. We knew about Take My Breath Away. We knew about all these things. And we had a plan for how we were going to handle that. What we weren't prepared for was just the regular dialogue of the movie that's frankly quite awful. Uh, we, we, just, wait, we weren't prepared for that. And so I say that today because what you've got to know from the start of coming to the story of Noah and the flood is that what we're reading today is way more Top Gun than it is Veggie Tales. Like there's moments where you're going to read this and go, how was I given this as a kid? How was I allowed to read this sort of story? What we've done, the reason we're allowed to read it as kids is because we've made this kid safe. We've made story, the story of Noah and the flood safe for kids. We've told it as a story that's about animals and boats and rainbows. We've told it as a story about this family man who believed God and it was going to be over his dead body that a bad rainstorm was going to take his family so he built a boat or something. You know. We start asking more questions about this story about were there dinosaurs on the boat? We ask questions about dinosaurs instead of asking, hey, why, why did the rainstorm come in the first place? Why did it happen? We ask more questions about the giants who are reported to be in the land than what they mean for the bad things that started to happen for those who were made to bear the image of God. 
We ask questions about the sheer size of the boat and the length of the rainstorm and, and how, did, how did Noah get all of that gopher wood in the first place? We ask questions like that, then what does this even mean? What is it supposed to teach us? When you read the actual story of Noah, when you actually read this thing from the text of Scripture, not like a kid's Bible or something like that, but from the text of chapter 6 to 8, what you start to get is a picture of widespread violence from humanity. You start to get an idea about the judgment of God. And then you get a picture of something wild and fascinating in our passage today, the grief of God. Judgment and grief held together in this passage. You get a picture that this downpour was more about judgment than it was a wild weather pattern. It didn't freak God out like he didn't sort of miss the weather report and think, you know what, I could actually use something like this. What you see is that God caused the rainstorm. God did it. And he did it for judgment. And the story about all of this wasn't a peaceful picture that sometimes we get in a kid's book, you got to realize there were countless dead bodies floating in the water around the boat. It's Top Gun. It's a real story here. And the story ends with Noah, this man of faith, leading his family off of the boat and getting started and God starting over with him like he did with Adam, even giving him the same blessing to fill and multiply the earth. You almost get like Adam, uh, Noah is this second Adam. But then the story closes with this man of faith, Noah, ending his life in a drunken stupor and having a bizarre sexual encounter with another member of his family, not his wife. And you almost have to read the ending of the story twice to sort of make sure you didn't read it wrong. It's just a crazy ending to the story. Again, way more Top Gun than it is Veggie Tales. And this story, for all that you've been told, isn't really about Noah. He's a central figure in the story. He's got a lot to teach us. But spoiler alert, this is actually a story about God. It's primarily a story about God. And it raises all kinds of really difficult and interesting questions for us to consider about God. Like, number one, the authority that God has to judge according to his prerogative and as he so chooses. And then we're going to learn something today about the emotional life of God. Just consider that for a second, the emotional life of God. Our text is going to tell us today that God has the capacity to grieve, and he often does so. And then what does all of that mean for a God who judges and grieves over sinful humanity to still then make promises to people who don't deserve it? There's all kinds of stuff that this exposes that are really important for us to consider. And so my hope today is that we interact with some stuff in this familiar story that we might have missed. It's really important stuff we might have missed. Maybe to say it in a simple sentence and then get going today. My hope today is to give you the story of Noah back. It's to give it back to you. And so where we pick up in chapter 6 is a continuation of the end of chapter 5 where Andrew left off last week. What's happening here is that since the fall of Genesis 3, sin and rebellion and the lie that God isn't good, that he can't be trusted, the lie that's gone into all of our hearts has now spread everywhere. The lie has spread everywhere. Rebellion has spread everywhere. Sin has spread everywhere. And the result of that since chapter 3 made explicit last week as you read in chapter 5 is death. The result of the lie is death. And there's that refrain that 
you read last week that's unmistakable and pronounced in chapter 5, and he died, and he died over and over in chapter 5. And so you got to remember the knowledge of good and evil, the, the stuff that Adam and Eve thought would be so desirable, the stuff that would really give them life, the stuff that they could get for themselves that God was withholding from them or something like that. The, the, the stuff that they thought was so desirable, this knowledge of good and evil has only served to spread evil. There's been no good. There's only been evil. And so chapter 6 then opens with this continuation of the description of the downward spiral of humanity east of Eden. Pick up with me in 6 verse 1. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were attractive, and they took as their wives any that they chose. And the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. And so his days are going to be 120 years. And the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and afterward also. And when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. There's actually been a lot of ink spilled in these first four verses of chapter 6, like questions about who are these sons of God going into the daughters of men, and who are the Nephilim, and what does it mean that they were mighty men? Were they giants? Was Goliath a Nephilim? All these sorts of questions. There's a lot going on here that can actually distract us from the main point. But here's the main point, lest we're distracted. Sin, wickedness, violence, and chaos has multiplied. This is a continued picture of it's everywhere. There's a picture here in verses 1 to 4. This is spiritual chaos. This is sexual chaos. This is relational chaos. And just real quickly on these sons of God, who are they in the passage? The oldest interpretation in the church is that they were likely fallen angels. They were demons who were, as one scholar said, commandeering the souls of men. And then these demonized men were marrying the daughters of other men. Scholar David Atkinson goes on like this. Whoever they were, there is something passionate about their embrace. And something monstrous was the outcome. The Nephilim refer apparently to giants the origin, of some, uh, the origin of some of whom at least, if not all, were traced to these angel marriages. <laughs> now, I realize that this probably sounds like a sci-fi sidebar in Scripture. Like, what are, we, what are we talking about here? But let me just sort of say this. We, we said earlier in our study of Genesis that this was originally written to Israel, who would have been well-educated in the pagan myths of their day. So what, no, what, what Moses is writing about here wouldn't have sounded strange to them, He's writing with full knowledge of those worldviews, but he's also writing in defiance of those worldviews. And if nothing else, here's what he's trying to show them and to us, that there's nothing, no being over whom the Lord God does not reign supreme. Demonic or satanic or otherwise, he reigns supreme. And the point of these first four verses is this. Things are really bad. After Genesis 3, things have gotten really bad. And this is exactly where the next verse goes. It ties this together. And it gets us moving today. Pick up in verse 5. And so the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth. And notice the language here. And that every intention of the thoughts of his heart were only evil continually. I mean, the writer is stressing something here. If you've ever gone to, mar to marriage counseling or pre-marriage counseling, a good marriage coach is going to tell you, hey, when you're arguing with your spouse, don't use words like always or never. It's a bad idea. God disregards that because it was that bad. 
only evil continually. So the first thing I want you to see here is the justice of God. The justice of God. Remember, Moses was writing to ancient Israel, and he's trying to answer the question through these early parts of Genesis to these ex-slaves to Egypt, now wandering in the wilderness. He's answering the question, why is the world the way that it is? Why all the brokenness out there, and why all the brokenness in here? He's trying to get to that question. And so with the type of assessment that you get in verse 5 of the wickedness of man great in the earth, it starts to raise some questions. What is God going to do about it? Can God do anything about it? Has the power of sin and the wickedness of man now outstretched the power of God? Has it strong-armed even God? Can God do anything? Will God do anything? Does God have control over the chaos, or is he fighting it somehow? So pick up in verse 6. It says, The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I'm going to blot out man that I've created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things, birds of the heavens. I'm starting all over. I'm sorry I made any of this. There's a lot to unpack in these verses, but I want you to see this just for now. The sinfulness of man provokes the judgment of God. The sinfulness of man provokes. It draws out. It, like, initiates judgment. The story of the flood is about God's authority to bring divine judgment to sinful humanity. So the question of, has the power of sin become greater than God? No. The answer is no. He doesn't struggle against the forces of chaos. It's not as though evil is unleashed and God is then, you know, sort of has his hands behind his back and he's cuffed. That's not what's going on here. God has decisive command over evil in the world and over the evil inside of humanity. And so here's what's interesting, guys. We're like, you know, a few minutes into the sermon. No one wants to talk about divine judgment. No one wants to talk about wrath. Like, if you're getting ready for church today, and you're like, you know what I hope we talk about today? Wrath. <laughs> no one says that. No one says that. No one wants to talk about that. And that's why this story has been made about boats and animals. Because that's just easier to deal with. Talking about rainbows is easier than divine wrath. But I want you to notice what verse 5 says. We fly right over it. But the first three verses of verse 5 are really important. Notice what it says. The Lord saw. Can you, can you imagine all that God must see? Can you imagine all that God must see? fascinating. Like he doesn't just see the stuff that happens. Verse 5 is going to tell us that he sees the thoughts and the intentions that are drawing up those plots, like the internal conversations in the hidden secret places of like motivation that then draw out the actions that you then see. Can you just hold for a second all that God must see? You can't hold it, frankly. There's a verse in the book of Luke where Jesus shows just how much God sees. Luke, two, Luke 12, verses 2 and 3. It'll be on the screen. He's saying that nothing is covered up that will not be revealed. And nothing is hidden that will not be known. Verse 3 is massive. Therefore, whatever you have said, notice here, whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And whatever has been whispered in private rooms will be proclaimed from the housetops. 
There is nothing in the dark that God doesn't see with crystal clarity. Just consider that for a second. There's no whisper, there's no action in a private back room somewhere, a plan and a thought of the heart of man to do wicked, that God didn't hear that conversation with clarity, see their actions with clarity. There's nothing that goes on under the threat of silence that God is uninformed about. He sees. He sees. And so just, I mean, just pull this out of sort of a theory for a second, and now just talk in reality, the things that are happening on your television screen in Israel and in Gaza right now. What happens? Your heart cries out for justice. Do something. Can someone do something? Can someone stop the chaos? You hear about, you hear about Sudanese genocide and extremist groups that are raping women, making a point of it. We cry out for justice. Rightly so, you cry out for justice. When, evils, when evil things like that come into view, if we, when we see, the Lord sees, but when we see, if when we see those sorts of things, we stop asking questions about judgment at that point. We see, we, we, we stop saying, why would God judge sin? Why would he judge evil? Instead we say, when will he do it? Someone's gotta do it. Why doesn't he do something about it? And so when we come up to a passage like this, it's about judgment and destruction, we can at times feel like we're nervous about what that says about our God, as though somehow him executing judgment is like a skeleton we've got to keep in the closet or something. But lean in with me here. Well, here's what's more true. You don't have a problem with judgment. That's not your real problem. And the reason I know that is because our current culture has its finger waiting to press the button to cancel the next person. We want judgment. We're almost like begging for the next opportunity to judge someone. Our problem isn't with judgment, guys. Our problem instead isn't, well, let me, let me pause there for a second, just suspense, right? It's not with judgment, and it's also not with God's judgment waters and someone being drowned, everyone in the room can think of somebody that ought to be drowned in their opinion. Let me tell you what our problem is now. Our problem instead is that you and I know deep down we're not the judge. And that makes us nervous. Can we trust the judge's judgments? Can we trust them? And our problem isn't just that we know we're not the judge, we know who we are really. You know and I know who we are from the inside. You know what you've done. You know who you are. You know the thoughts and intentions of your heart and you're terrified the judgment waters might just come for you. That's our problem with judgment. And so the wildness of this account, when you look at the sheer volume of evil, divine judgment is not the surprise. We go, yes, someone's gotta do something. The surprise is that God would save anybody, Noah. That's the surprise of this account. And so let me just sort of end this point by saying this. If God is anything, he must be a judge. If God is anything, he must be a judge. Listen, what's the alternative? The alternative would be that he would have all power and he would have all goodness, but he would hold those things in passivity. All power and all goodness, but he would just be indifferent. The world is, you know, awful. Awful things are happening. He has goodness, he has power to do something, but he doesn't care. That's not good. That wouldn't make him good, that wouldn't make him trustworthy, that would make him an awful thought. Instead, what makes him good and what makes him trustworthy is that he's a judge. 
It is that he's a judge. And listen, don't sort of pit his judgments against his love. In Scripture, his judgments are always motivated by his love. Here's a great quote from a pastor. It says it this way. For love to truly be loving, there must be judgment. And if there's no judgment, then there's no hope for a slave. There's no hope for a rape victim. There's no hope for a child who's been abused or bullied or people who have been slandered or robbed or had their dignity stolen. If nobody's going to be called into account before a cosmic judgment seat for violence and oppression, then victims will never see justice. And so we actually need a God who gets angry. We actually need that. We need a God who will protect his kids and who will once and for all remove bullies and perpetrators of evil from his playground. We need that. Now, the first thing you see in Genesis 6 is the justice of God. But that moves me to the second thing I want you to see, and that is the tears of God. The tears of God. Guys, what we're about to read in verse 6, when I read this a few weeks ago in study, it absolutely caused my jaw to drop. Something breathtaking here that I think we often miss. Notice verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man in the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. We often just get hung up on the word regret as though, does this mean that God is having this internal conversation that somehow he thinks he made a mistake? That's not what the word regret here means. The word regret is more like lament. It's more like a heaviness of heart. And the reason we know that is because it moves on from that word in the context of the passage and goes on to say, let me illustrate what that looks like. When he sees the sinfulness of man, what does it cause him to do? Grieve. Grieve. Maybe the thought of God judging the world is a really hard thought for you to take. But pause here. What this passage just said is that it's also a hard thought for God to take. The picture we get here isn't God up in heaven with his arms folded looking at the wickedness of man and just saying, I'm done with you, sort of with the swipe of a hand or something, like he's delighting in destruction. That's not the picture. What's wild here is you see God executing justice for what he rightly ought to execute justice over, but he's doing so with tears in his eyes. That's what's wild about this passage. The word grieved in Hebrew means deep, unfulfilled longing or deep, bitter anguish. So what does this mean? This is, this is huge. It means that by God's own will, by his, out of his own love, he has bound his heart and his life up with humanity. That's what it means. He didn't have to connect himself to us like that. He didn't do it because there was something lacking in him that he needed in us. He didn't do it that way. What the passage is saying is that after making us in his image, he voluntarily bound himself up with humanity. He's so emotionally and relationally connected to us in such a way that God feels joy because of his connection to humanity, but God also, when he sees something going wrong with us or he sees the rebellion that we're carrying out against him, you realize that you have the capacity to make God to grieve? You have that capacity. Yale professor of philosophy and theology, Nicholas Waltersoff, once famously said this, the tears of God are the meaning of history. The tears of God. And what he means is this. Think back to Genesis 3, verse 6. And Genesis 3, 6 is when Adam and Eve took the fruit. They had the fruit and they had the goodness of God on the table. 
They just wiped away God. I don't want you. I just want what I want. They took the fruit. Man rejected God. The question becomes, if man rejects God in Genesis 3-6, have you ever asked the question, why is there a Genesis 3-7? Why is there a Genesis 3-7? Like, why didn't, and if there is a Genesis 3-7, why isn't that the last verse in the Bible? Man rejected God, and so God was just done. Gave him over to themselves. You don't get that. But then you move forward, and you get a Genesis 6, verse 5. It says, God saw wickedness across the face of the earth. You ever ask the question, why did you get a Genesis 6-6? And if there is a 6-6, why isn't it? Why? Now he's finally done. If he wasn't done in 3-6, he's now done in 6-6. Why all this effort to save Noah? Why all this effort to build an ark? Why all this effort to save his family? Why are we still here? Have you ever asked that question? With all of the wickedness in the world, not just right now, but think through history. Stalin and Hitler and we can keep going all this. What? Pol Pot, like why? Why? Why are we still here? Like, why hasn't God ended this thing by now? Why is there still a history? What's wild, guys, is the answer to that question is that God decided to weep. He, like, he did what he needed to do in 6-6 to restrain evil. The wickedness of man is great. I'm going to restrain evil through a judgment flood, but I'm going to do so in a way that doesn't give up on people. And so in Genesis 6, 6, you and I get the first glimpse of God suffering for the sins of the world. This is the first glimpse. You reason like there's, the only reason that there's any history is because God said, I'm willing to suffer. That's the only reason there's history. This is what Walter Stoff meant when he said the tears of God are the meaning of history. God knew that sin was coming. He knew that wreckage was coming even before creation. And yet he still created us and he voluntarily bound himself up with us. He knew what he was going to have to suffer beyond what anyone could imagine. And yet he let history go on. He didn't stop it. If you're a parent in the room, if this is difficult to understand, every parent in the room knows exactly what's happening here. No parent is under the illusion that your child is going to be perfect and never hurt you. And if you are under the illusion that your child is going to be perfect and never hurt you, spoiler alert. Spoiler alert, right? And the reason that your child can hurt you is because your child has access to parts of your heart that can cause you deep, deep, deep pain. And the reason that they can cause you pain is because you're bound up with them. You're bound up with them. Listen, there is no truly loving parent with pain in their heart who would look at their child and say, I wish I never brought you into the world. No one would say that. In fact, with pain still in your chest, you would say, I would do it all over again. I can't, I can't imagine life without you. And why would you say that? Because they're yours. And they belong to you. You're bound up with them. This is how God feels about you. This is just a glimpse. There's actually something really incredible, really mind-blowing about the love of God when you look at the grieving of God. He knew that you would sin. He knew that I would be a wreck. He knew that getting involved with me was going to cost him way more than he would ever get on the other side. And yet he never flinched. Instead, he said, I'm willing to suffer so that you could live. 
the justice of God mixed with the tears of God. And this gets us to the last point today, the God who saves. In Genesis 6, verse 8, it says that Noah found favor with God. So he was a guy in his day who stood out from the crowd. He trusted God when everyone else didn't. He walked with God. And so God made Noah a promise that he would save he and his family from the judgment to come. And there's this refrain, if you've ever read chapter 7, there's this refrain that shows up in Genesis 7 that's hard to miss. Hard to miss. It says, Noah did all the God commanded him to do. Four different times it talks about Noah's obedience to God. But unless we start to think that this is a story about the righteousness of Noah, the central point, if you want to know everything that's driving in this story, it all comes down from 6, it all comes up from 8 and 7 into Genesis 8.1. That's the point of the story. The point of the story is Genesis 8.1, the first four words, God remembered Noah. The account of the flood isn't primarily about judgment. The account of the flood is primarily about salvation, not how Noah saved himself. There was nothing that Noah could do to save himself from the judgment of God. There's nothing that anybody can do. God sees everything and he judges. He judges. You can't save yourself from the judgment of God. If, if there is salvation, it's going to be because God provides it. God remembered Noah. And so here's what Noah teaches us. Noah teaches us about God's offer of salvation through one man and the righteousness of that one man. Noah alone finds favor with God. He's the only one in his day to be found righteous, but I want you to notice his family and those who belonged to Noah are saved from God's judgment because of their relationship to Noah. Salvation through one man. It's teaching us something here. And God's covenant wasn't with Noah's family. It was only with Noah. But those who belonged to Noah benefit from Noah's righteousness. But he was only righteous to save seven. His wife, his three sons, and, his, and their three wives. So the story of Noah actually points beyond itself. God keeps grieving. History goes on. The story of Noah points outside of itself to our need for a greater Noah for one who is truly righteous, for one who truly finds favor with God, for one who doesn't fail at the end of his life like Noah did, but does all that God commands like Noah did, but does them until his dying breath. Jesus is the greater Noah. He's the truly righteous man. He's the truly obedient man who establishes a new covenant with God and man. You realize that by, by belonging to Jesus and by belonging only to Jesus, his, his righteousness is a benefit to you before the face of God. And not just to a few people, but to the whole world who would look to him. He's the greater Noah. Not saving just seven, but all. And the flood teaches us, guys. The flood teaches us about God's pattern to save through judgment. Everyone wants salvation. Nobody wants judgment. Can we please have salvation? Can we please get rid of judgment? You can't have salvation without judgment. That's how God saves. That's just how God saves. Salvation's on the table because God put it on the table. So if we're gonna get saved, we're saved God's way. He always saves through judgment. Here's what I mean. Think about the story. Here's the finish. Here's my jazz hands. Here's the closer, all right? If you're wanting this to be over, it's over soon. Think about the story. While the world was carrying on saying, God, I don't want you. God, I don't need you. God, I don't care about you. God, I don't trust you. What does Noah do? He builds a boat. He builds a boat. And he builds a boat because God told him to build a boat. And everyone laughs at Noah. 
It's the whole story, right? Everyone laughs at Noah, mocks Noah. Come on, Noah, rain, a flood. Come on, Noah, a boat, get a different hobby, Noah. And yet in the midst of all the mocking and laughing, Noah says, God, I trust you. God, I believe you. And here's the result. When the waters of judgment start to come down, the same waters that press and they crush everyone who didn't believe the word of God become the very same waters of judgment that lift Noah up. The same waters that crush are the same waters that lift Noah. How is it that Noah was saved when everyone else was drowned? The ark. The ark is how he was saved. The judgment that would sink everybody outside the ark is the same judgment that would save everybody inside the ark. And they were saved because they were hidden in the ark. What is the ark? Who is the ark? The flood story points beyond itself to our true ark of salvation. His name is Jesus. The same judgment that he received is the same judgment that would also now save us. The same judgment that would crush Jesus will save you if you hide yourself in him, just like they hid themselves in the ark. The judgment that Jesus took for sin becomes your judgment. His righteousness becomes your righteousness, and he is the ark that will lead us safely into the presence of the living God. John John chapter 5, verse 24, Jesus says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me, that person has eternal life. And notice, you don't come into judgment. Judgment fell on somebody else. He's the ark that leads us through judgment. You've passed from death to life. And so the tears of God are the meaning of history. Listen, guys, God's tears, they mean he's not willing to give up on you. God sees He sees the dark stuff inside of you that not even you want to admit. He sees the dark stuff inside of you that you don't want the person sitting next to you to know about. He grieves, and his tears mean I'm not giving up on you. Can you hold that? His tears also mean he's willing to suffer so that you and I can live. He takes his own judgment on himself. You've rejected God. I've rejected God. You've rebelled against God. I've rebelled against God. Something has to reckon. He takes the reckoning on himself. What you see in Jesus is the justice of God and the mercy of God come together. You realize that Will leads us in singing every week. And actually, it's actually a crazy thing to think about singing to God. Who sings to a God of judgment? Who does that? That's a weird thing to do. The only people who can sing to God are people who have seen the tears of God and yet an offer of mercy on the other side. That'll put a song in your mouth. That'll put a song in your mouth. And so I told you today that my hope was to give you the story of Noah back. This story is about the justice of God. This story is about the tears of God. And this story is about the God who saves. And so my question for you are really simple. Do you belong to the greater Noah? Do you belong to the greater Noah? Have you come into the ark of God, Jesus the Christ? 
Have you, have you, are there parts of your life that are hidden from God? God, don't, tuck, don't touch that. Don't talk about that. Don't deal with that. Are there parts of your life that are hidden from God that instead need to be hidden in God? The invitation today, if you're here and you've been a Christian for 30 plus years, or if you're not a Christian at all, the invitation today is exactly the same. Come to the ark of God, Jesus the Christ. Come to the ark of God. Hide yourself in him, not from him. Come to the ark of God and be safe. Let's pray. Our God, we do confess today, we confess today that you reign supreme. And everyone in this room feels when we see it clearly that you do see there's nothing about our lives that's hidden from you. Nothing about our lives is kept from you. Even if we try to keep it from you, you see it. And so God, would you help us today instead of hiding from you to instead hide ourselves inside of you? God, you can have my sin. You can have my hiding. You can have my secrets. You can have the things I don't even want to admit myself. God, you can have them because I want your son, Jesus. We don't want to cover ourselves. We want Jesus to be our covering. We don't want to hide from Jesus. We want to hide in Jesus. God, thank you that you offered us your son who is the ark leading us to your presence. I offer this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table today, I'll get you right there. Listen, if there was ever a picture, if there was ever literally a picture you could hold in your hands and taste with your mouth of salvation through judgment, it's this meal. Jesus, remember, he says, he takes the bread, he says, this is my body broken, judgment. But it's broken for you, salvation. He says, take and eat. He takes the cup and he raises it, he says, this is my blood, judgment, but my blood poured out for you, salvation. This is a new covenant. This is about the forgiveness of all your sins. He gets judged. We get saved. He's the ark. Go hide in him. If you're a baptized follower of the Lord Jesus, you're invited to come to these tables and receive literally fresh grace by tasting with your mouth and holding in your hands salvation through judgment. If you're not yet a Christian, I'd ask you to abstain from this meal. Christians will move around the room and I would encourage you to consider what would it look like for you to come to Jesus before you eat with Jesus. We'd love to talk with you about what it is to be a Christian at the end of our time today. But followers of Jesus, as you're ready, come receive from your King. Thank you.